0: Acts chapter 2, the verses 1 to 24 and 36 to 41. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For we are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them.
1: Now, uh, I'm always nervous when I come to a conference that I haven't been to uh, before, to a new group of folks, though I I have known many folks who have worked with beach missions in the past, including good friend in university, Dr. Stephen Moore, who went on to heaven a couple of years ago, and several other people. But I'm encouraged by a story uh, Billy Graham once told me when we were on a mission week in Cambridge in the 1980s. It was the story of a young guy, unfortunately, he was an American Baptist. And, um, and uh, he grew up in a church like I did, a Baptist church, where people, the preachers, didn't believe in using any notes. I do have notes this evening. And um, uh, you just had to get up and speak as you sensed the Holy Spirit was leading you. Uh, this is how he thought you should always preach. So he got up uh, this particular Sunday morning, and he said, I'm going to give you my text for the morning, and it's, Behold, I come unto you. And it was a church of 4,000, and as he saw all the people arrayed before him, many of whom he knew, he completely forgot what he was going to say, and he had no notes. So he thought, to give himself a little bit more time, he'd say his text a second time. So with a little bit more volume, he said, I I say to you a second time, the text from the morning is, behold, I come unto you. And he still, his mind was very blank. And he obviously knew some Welsh preachers, because we say, if you've got nothing much to say, just shout it louder and hope for the best. And uh, three times for a Welshman. So he thought he'd have a third and a final go, and he was a bulky guy, he was bigger than me, uh, and he hung over the pulpit, which was as wobbly as this one, and he said, I say to you a third time, behold, I've come unto you. At which time the pulpit collapsed under his weight, he fell forward, he landed in the lap of a lady sitting just about where you are, except she was about 70 years of age, with striking blue eyes, and as he looked up at her beautiful face from her lap, he said, I'm terribly sorry about this. She said, you don't have to apologize. You told me three times you were coming. (laughs) So behold, I've come unto you. But that isn't the text uh, for this evening. Now then, you've already had several uh, expositions about the life of Peter, and this evening we're going to focus in on Uh, His sermon, the first apostolic sermon of several in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and ask ourselves, in what ways can Peter's sermon be a model for us today? It's an interesting question because uh, he's speaking here to people with some biblical background, who understood the Old Testament, and uh, primarily uh, to Jews. It was a fairly undeveloped theological position he had uh, at that time. But there are lessons I think we can learn from Peter's model in this passage. I'd like to highlight, if we have time, maybe five things to take home from the passage. The first is a very simple one that I'm sure other speakers have already touched on, and Roger will probably touch on tomorrow also, which is that God can use all kinds of people. You'll notice in the passage that we had read to us in chapter 2, verse 7, that the people were amazed that these Galileans, it was like saying, as a group of people come from Merthyr Tidville, where I come from, a kind of backward... Coal mining, steel working town, where hardly anybody goes to university. What have they got to teach the rest of us? And this is how they viewed the Galileans in the first century. They were astonished uh, that Peter and these other folks could get up and speak. And, of course, we know from church history that uh, Peter's sermon is illustrative of the fact that God often uses the rough and the ready. Not many mighty, not many strong, often because the physical strength of some or the intellectual abilities, or the capacities to speak, can sometimes cause people to to, to become arrogant. And the one thing God will not have is a a proud spirit. So he often takes those who are weak uh, from the sidelines and uses them in service. One was D.L. Moody. I mentioned that mission with Billy Graham in Cambridge in 1982. One of the assistant missioners to Billy Graham at that time was a guy called John Wesley White who had done a doctorate on the American um, evangelist D.L. Moody. And he told me, Moody, he was a very poor speller. And he said, in the last letter he ever wrote, there were 33 grammatical errors. It was only two pages long. (laughs) And yet he spoke at one of the most powerful university missions in the history of university missions, where C.T. Studd and other people who became part of the so-called Cambridge Seven, taking the Gospel of China, uh, were converted. He started off, off as a shoe salesman, and yet, yet God raised this person up, rough and ready though he may have been, uh, to use powerfully in his service. It applies not just to preachers, but also to people involved in personal evangelism as well. I remember again when I was a student in university, uh, I was a sportsman, and I was leading a Bible study every Sunday afternoon with five non-Christian friends of mine. And after a year, none of them had become Christians. And I was a bit discouraged, being rather direct in personality. I pinned them all to the wall at the end of the year and said, why aren't you a Christian yet? The poor guys were frightened. My personality got in the way. But I was discouraged that none of them had responded to the gospel after a year. So when I came back in the second year, I thought I wouldn't bother to try this. just didn't have any impact. So I was struck by what was said earlier about God's spirit is working in his own subterranean way. Uh, Somebody said to me, well, why don't you ask them to a discussion again about scripture, Lindsay, and invite someone else to sit in with you. So I invited several people who said no. Then I came across a guy called Colin who came from the southeast of England. He had a very bad speech impediment. He was studying English literature. And in those days, in the tutorials, you had to read your essays out. His speech impediment was so bad, he couldn't read them. The tutor had to read them for him. And, but Colin came from a church where there was good Bible teaching. There were only 15 people in the church, but it was a well-taught church. He said to me, okay, I'll come along with you and sit with you, Lindsay, but don't ask me to speak because I, I can't speak. And he said, anyway, I don't get on with young people. There's only one other young person in my church. That's my sister, and I don't get on too well with her. So <laughs> I don't want to say anything. I'll sit there quietly and I'll pray. So he came along for three weeks, and on the fourth week I had the flu. I was ill. And poor Colin was left with these five guys uh, on his own for a Bible study. But because his speech was so poor, they interacted with him much better than they did with me. And as he couldn't get the words out, they'd say, is this what you mean? Is this the question you're thinking of asking? And apparently they had a fantastic discussion, and two people professed faith. (laughs) I was so angry, because I'd been working with them for a whole year and nothing had happened, and here God had used Colin. And that was a great lesson for me, that God can use anybody who wants to make themselves available to him. And that's what we see here in the life of Peter, of course, this rough and ready guy, ill-schooled, nevertheless God used in this context and beyond for the birth and the development of the church. The second principle that we can lesson, learn from uh, Peter's sermon here, is that it demonstrates how in public gatherings we can reach people from all the ends of the earth. There it is. The International Student Ministry we've just heard. Didn't plan that ahead of time, but I'm so glad that you're working with international students. Now, the issue of migrants is a big source of tension in the UK at the moment. I'm not speaking politically for or against that. All I'm saying is that when you see great movements in the history of the world, the question to ask is not so much why is God allowing this to happen to me or to us, but the mature Christian question is, given that God is allowing this to happen, how then should I live? So the question we ask when we see international students coming to the beaches of the UK in the summer, or other people from different countries like Iran or elsewhere uh, coming uh, to listen to us on the beaches when we're speaking is, is God opening a door for the advance of the gospel here? Because when you read the Acts of the Apostles, God has two strategies. The one is something that we commonly hear of in our churches. He calls people to leave their own culture to take the gospel to other nations. But God's second strategy, often less commented on, is that often he brings people from their cultures, uh, leaving behind their own roots, in order to hear the gospel in another context. Now, can anybody shout out at least three names for me, from the Acts of the Apostles, of people who are converted at home? That's all I look for, three names, okay? from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Lydia, away from home, from Thyatira, North Africa. Cornelius, away from home, Italy. Timothy probably converted at home through his mother and grandmother Lewis, uh, Lewis and Eunice. Philippian jailer, probably yes, though he may have been, uh, he may have had Roman roots, as Italian roots as well. A very few. The vast majority of people converted in the Acts of the Apostles, including Philip, including Paul, including the people of the day of Pentecost, were away from home. You read the text carefully again in verses 5 to 11, and in that, uh, in, uh, that was beautifully read, that passage, with those complicated uh, names from the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and so on. There are 15 different language groups. Now, whatever one thinks of the gift of tongues, uh, in, the, in the context of Acts chapter 2, it wasn't, wasn't given in that context. I'm not commenting on other situations, but it wasn't given in Acts 2 for the purpose of worship. It was given in Acts 2 for the purpose of evangelism and mission so people could hear the gospel in their own tongues. They were all away from home. And these days we have unprecedented opportunities, I would say, especially amongst Iranians and Chinese, but also others, to communicate the gospel in ways that we never dreamed of and previous generations never je- dreamed of. And, and Isaac Watson, that hymn never dreamed of. Uh, in the 21st century to communicate the gospel or away from their cultural roots. Let me just give one illustration. I have many in a chapter in my book there. But one is, I saw somebody today from Bath University. I had a friend who studied there a number of years ago from Zambia. His name was Derek Mutungu. He knew nobody when he turned up at the station at the beginning of the academic year, at the end of September. The CU had a book stall there and was welcoming people. They greeted Derek. He knew no one, so they had a hospitality scheme with the local churches. They fixed up for him to, have, uh, to go to church and have Sunday lunch with a couple who had never traveled overseas before in one of the churches in Bath. As he engaged with them and subsequently with members of the Christian Union, uh, he became a Christian himself. He went on to do a doctorate in Imperial College in London. Uh, returned to Zambia, impressed by what he'd seen in the Christian unions in this country, and decided to start ZAFIS, the Zambian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. He became the first staff worker, and the group grew sensationally to include, after five years, 10% of all university students in the country were involved. News got to the presidential palace, to Kenneth Konda, one of the giants of uh, African political leadership. So Konda sent a message to Derek. Konda had been to a Catholic school when he was younger and said, I hear you're turning the university, this is what he said, I hear you're turning the university upside down with some message. I want you to come to the presidential palace and tell me what it is. So Derek went to the presidential palace. Dr. Cohen asked him, what is this message that you're sharing? At which point, and those of you who have friends who are Africans will know that this is a reality, Derek preached the gospel to the president standing in front of him. The president started to cry, to weep, because he'd been brought up in a mission school, not an evangelical one but he'd heard vaguely of some of these truths. And he said to him, I want you to come back in two weeks' time and bring the leadership team from the university here uh, to the presidential palace in two weeks. So Derek returned in two weeks, and when he went into the presidential palace, there lined up for him was Kenneth Kunda and the whole cabinet of the government in Zambia. And the president turned to him and said, Derek, now preach to them what you preach to me. All that started... Because he heard the gospel in Bath through a family who had never traveled overseas and some of us may not but we have opportunities to be uh, in uh, camps and so on and evangelistic efforts on the beaches of the UK where we will ordinarily come up against international students and folks from other countries during the course of the summer. Now, as I speak in university missions in UK and in the continent, I think we're seeing as many international students professing faith as we are national students. One girl I saw profess faith earlier this year earlier from the Druze, who are a Muslim sect in Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. She said, I don't know any Druze Christians. She flew home after, on the weekend to tell her parents she'd become a believer. She said, they want me to marry a Druze guy, but I can't because they're all Muslims. But she said... I want to be the first apostle to the Druze. Where did she hear the gospel? Manchester, in the UK. So I want to encourage you to see, based on what was happening here in Pentecost, this, as you run through the whole of the Acts of the Apostles, gives us a biblical justification, and in fact an encouragement to engage with people of other cultures. If we are 400 and each of us made a friendship with one person from another culture, over the next year. The implications for the advance of the gospel uh, could be immense. It's interesting, I was in uh, uh, Albania just a couple of months ago speaking at the National Student Conference there. remember when I was with OM many years ago, we used to pray for Albania every Friday night. In 1990, there were three known Albanian Christians uh, in the country. Today, there are about 18,000 evangelical Christians. And uh, when we had a conference in Duras, which is a port the main port in Albania, the leaders of the student work told me that someone, a historian, had just been doing some research from archaeological and other evidence and had discovered that there were people probably from what was called Illyria in the first century who were at the day of Pentecost and 20 years later in AD 53, there is evidence that there were 70 believing families. That means several hundred people in a church in Durres. 20 years after the day of Pentecost and after the Apostle Paul and others early missionary endeavors. So you see the advantage of getting older if you're not just in your 20s, but if you're in your 40s or your 60s like Roger and myself, then uh, you see God's hand at work in different cultures as the gospel takes root and is seeded and bears fruit. And let's pray therefore that many who are here, will be able to sow seed in the lives of folks that you meet so that the gospel can advance in many other parts of the world, even if you don't go to serve there as a result of this ministry. Third principle. The passage shows us that God uses a variety of evangelistic approaches to reach people, including proclamation in the open air. Now, I think the best evangelism always has the three C's. It's got good content, it's Christ-centered, and it's creative. What I loved about the reports is the emphasis on creativity. Looks like a bell ringer here. And uh, then you have uh, It's a Knockout and various other things that you're doing in the summer as a means of engaging with people and connecting with them. And uh, that creates space for us. Uh, It wins the favor of people so we can communicate the gospel. Now, in the New Testament, it seems to me, and in the Reformation, incidentally, through Luther and Calvin, they were astonishingly creative in the way they reached out. If you read the Acts of the Apostles carefully, it seems to me there were four main, four main evangelistic approaches. Personal friendship, which Michael Green's calls gossiping the gospel. Secondly, small groups, house to house. Thirdly, dialogue, which Paul engaged in on a number of occasions. And fourthly, public proclamation. That's what you see here uh, in Peter's apostolic sermon. And I think what it highlights to us, is that the focus on proclamation in the new testament is a biblical principle when it comes to evangelism we need to dis, we need to separate between what is a principle and therefore timeless transcultural transhistorical and methodology methodology can be very varied we can proclaim in a cafe in a coffee shop uh in a, a women's meeting in a lecture theater um, uh on the beach uh, in a church, these are all different forms of proclamation, different methodologies. Some function or work better in some cultures than others. They can be dispensed with or picked up. The folks in Serbia said we don't like lunch bars like they do in Britain because you eat your food too fast. Can't do that in Serbia. Everything's decided in the coffee shop. Marriage proposals, business deals, and so on. So we're going to start coffee shop evangelism. So that's what they do. They hire coffee shops for their evangelistic activity for several for several hours uh, at a time. So the methodology may differ, but the principle of public proclamation is timeless. So we cannot say we're not going to do this because it doesn't work. We can say we're not seeing much evidence visibly of it working yet. But if the scriptures and the acts especially are replete or full with references to the public articulation, defense, proclamation of the gospel, we must do it, whatever happens, even if nothing is obvious. That is a biblical imperative, it seems to me. And uh, though a proclamation in the open air meetings may not be as often fruitful as it was in the past, nevertheless, God is gracious to use it. I talked with Jason earlier about how he met Alan on Benflech Beach in Anglesey, or Annis Morn. I spent a lot of time talking with him, engaging with the the gospel. He's in a senior position advising the government on electricity policy, and he subsequently became a Christian. It, It started with hearing the gospel on a beach in Anglesey, one of the parts of Wales where there are fewest local believers, incidentally. I think of another friend in the evangelical movement of Wales, Phil Swan, who told me that his mother was walking along the, uh, the seafront as a student in Aberystwyth. She was a fanatical uh, uh, Welsh language and Welsh culture supporter, and then she saw an open air meeting. She heard the gospel. She was just hit like that between the eyes and converted. Then she marries her husband, Derek, who is a well-known Bible teacher, pastor, and preacher. They have a son, Phil, who becomes a, a believer and a pastor. There, his son in addition, now is a believer, worshipping in our church in Cardiff. So you have three generations where the gospel influence cascades down it. Why? Because one open air meeting uh, on uh, near the beach in Aberystwyth. Who can tell? And that's why we should engage in these things and continue to persevere in them, trusting that God will bring his fruit in due course. The challenge for many of us is we want to see things quickly, whereas as Samuel Escobar said, the only thing 20th century man has discovered is speed. We want everything quick, whereas the Christian life is more like a marathon than a sprint. Now, if there are any budding preachers here, let's go on to the fourth point and look at the style and the content of Peter's sermon very quickly. Notice the style of his proclamation. I once had an interesting conversation with a great Welsh preacher that some of you who are younger may not have come across or heard of called Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was the most gifted preacher I heard. Incidentally, many people in churches in Britain love his Bible expositions, but his wife said, you'll never understand my husband unless you understand that first of all he was an evangelist. That was his primary passion. Interesting. A lot of people follow his concern for exposition, but not evangelism. Anyway, I asked him on one occasion, Doctor, what are the hallmarks of great evangelistic preaching? So if any of you aspire to be great, to be evangelistic preachers, listen to this piece of advice, because it's the best I ever heard. He said there are four hallmarks of the best evangelistic preaching. First, you start with the mind. Then you go to the conscience. Then the will. Then the emotions. You have to approach the whole person. He said the two classic mistakes evangelists make uh, they either start with the mind and stop there. This can be the danger of some apologists or dry teachers. And some people reacting against that go straight for the emotions, try to affect an emotional response which is sometimes spurious, and he said it's murder to get them to come around a second time. I remember meeting, I talked of D.L. Root Moody earlier. I was on another mission week or events week in Oxford some years later, and his grandson was studying in Jesus College. So I went to see him. And I was amazed. He wouldn't even acknowledge that Moody, he was related to Moody. I asked him if he had any Christian connections. He said, I went forward in one or two meetings, but uh, it never had much impact on me. And I said, well, did you actually really repent and turn to Christ? Uh, he said, no, I just, I felt a warm feeling. And I said, well, you know, the Bible says you've got to receive Christ and repent. Otherwise, you, you, you're not going to experience the born again Uh, experience. Well, Lloyd-Jones said you need to have these four things, and they're all there in Peter's sermon. In verses 14 to 22, if you want to trace it, he talks, he he addresses the mind. He says in verse 14, this is somebody without a university education. He's not preaching as an apologist. He says, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. And then in verse 22, it picks it up again, where he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. He's playing out the story of the life of Jesus. He's explaining and giving evidences of the fact that God has come into the world in the person of Jesus. He's addressing their minds. But then he moves from the mind to the conscience in verse 23, and he says, This Jesus, you put him to death. And they were really struck by this in the conscience. They pick it up again in the next, uh, later on in the chapter in verses 36 to 38, where after saying this, the people were cut to the heart, uh, Luke the writer says. And they said, what, must we, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, He's going straight for the will. You must respond in repentance and faith. And then the emotions, there was great rejoicing and praise, verses 43, 47, and so on. The whole person was touched. A lot of our evangelistic sermons and even Bible teaching is too dry. It lacks conviction and depth and punch. It lacks an application to the whole personality. And um, I think that's what we see here in, Paul's, in Peter's approach, as Lloyd-Jones uh, picked up from his sermon here in Acts. Mind, conscience, will, Emotions, But then the next slide will indicate that Peter speaks of three other things. And again, Lloyd-Jones said, in classical great preaching, you see these three things. Peter speaks of the truth of the gospel. In verses 14 to 24, he's addressing the cardinal core issues of the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. If you haven't done that, you haven't communicated the gospel. And... um, He says, let me explain these things to to you. And then he takes many verses to explain of the life and the ministry of Jesus. He's giving evidences. By the way, for those who are not all that keen on reasoning in evangelistic talks, the distinction that New Testament makes is not between, I I, I, I say again, not between reason and faith. It's between faith and sight. When Jesus was risen from the dead and Thomas saw the holes in his hands and his side and feet, Jesus rebuked him for being slow to believe. He said, Thomas, it's good that you have believed. Better if you had believed having seen me, not having thought about me. As John Scott says, we mustn't pander to people's intellectual curiosity. There's no substitute for love and prayer. But we must give evidences. Why? Because men and women are made in the image of God as reasoning creature. And secondly, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. And truth is objective and revealed in the person of Jesus. So that's a reason for reasoned defense. On another occasion, the apostle says in the Acts to one of his uh, interlocutors, uh, you know that these things are both true and reasonable. And so uh, evidence is given as a support or a basis for the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to people's understanding, the truth of the gospel. But some people are so concerned to be clear in focusing on the truth of the gospel, they diminish sometimes the emphasis on the power of the gospel. This is often where Pentecostals are very strong. They really believe the gospel is powerful in transforming lives. And uh, we see the power of the gospel in verses 38 to 41, where thousands were converted as a result. I remember when I was with Operation Mobilization for a year on their ship, Logos, before I came into student work. I was in South Africa, and I went to a a Zulu uh, village, and there were some remarkable things happening there. There was a book written about the revival going on in this village, and I met one woman who said she'd been raised from the dead. So I went back to the ship, and I was sharing a friend with a a room with a former drug addict, an Irish friend called Joe, who was a very good uh, whistler. And uh, he hadn't long been converted through missionaries in India. And I said, Joe, you never guess what I've just seen. I saw a woman who said she'd been raised from the dead. And quick as a flash, he said to me, Lindsay, that's nothing. You have too. She'll die again, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you're alive in Jesus Christ, and you'll go to heaven as a consequence. So get your perspective right, boy. you have only been a Christian for six months. But he saw it. That's not to play down God's supernatural power. But there's nothing so powerful... As the transformation that comes through the appreciation and acceptance of the gospel of Christ. So Peter communicates the truth of the gospel. He communicates the power of the gospel. And I remember talking with a friend of mine who is a Pentecostal pastor in Bosnia now. And uh, he's one of the 60 people we have as evangelists. I said to him, Sasha, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, oh, I was in the Civil War in 1994, Lindsay. I was the top sharpshooter in the country. He said, I killed a lot of people. I could kill people from several hundred meters. I could hear them dying and screaming. He said, I wasn't a Christian. And he said, my conscience was troubled. I'd go to bed at night and I'd wake up in a cold sweat screaming. I felt so guilty. So he said, I ran away from the country. I crossed the border. He said, that I met this woman. And she could see I was in a disturbed state. So she asked me what the problem was. I said, I've been killing all these people. I can't live with my conscience. It's sullied. And she said, what you need to hear is about the forgiveness and the grace which is in, which is through God in Christ Jesus. He said, tell me about it. Uh, how can I experience forgiveness? She explained the gospel to me. And then he said these beautiful words. And as I heard the gospel of God's grace, he said, my guilt disappeared like the snow in the springtime. And then he became an artist and a pastor in a church in Sarajevo. He understood something of the power of the gospel. But thirdly, and this is the big one, which is often missing from much evangelistic preaching. Peter demonstrated the wonder of the gospel. Notice how the people in verse 11 were saying, how on earth can we hear all these wonders? Because they really grasped that the gospel was the greatest message in the history of the world. And had things to say which touched people at the deepest level in terms of experiencing uh, unconditional love, forgiveness, uh, freedom, uh, hope. A sense of meaning, all coming from the gospel. Where else can you find these things? And it filled them with a sense of wonder. This came home to me again when I was in Argentina some years ago, speaking in a student conference about the grace of God. That's the fountain from which all a sense of wonder comes. Martin Luther said it's the article of a standing or a falling church. I was speaking about it one evening and afterwards this guy followed me out. He was a missionary he had been in Arian Jaya. He was 80 years of age. He tapped me on the shoulder. He said, thank you for speaking of God's grace tonight. He said, isn't it wonderful? He said, oh, I preached about it many times myself. I've been a pioneer missionary. But he said, whenever I heard somebody else speak about God's the the wonder of God's grace, he said, I'm deeply moved. I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, during the Second World War, I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I killed a lot of people. Then I was converted. I met the Lord. Then I met my wife. Second best meeting. Then I married her. (laughs) Then God called us into ministry. Then he called us into pioneer ministry. And we came to Arian Jaya. It was so dangerous working with headhunters. The Dutch Air Force winched us down from a helicopter that refused to land. We worked with these people and revival broke out. He said, one Sunday I baptized 3,000 people. So he said, do you see why I think the gospel is so wonderful? Because by it, not only was I forgiven, not only was I set free, but God called me into ministry and not just general ministry, but into pioneer ministry and into the work of revival. Such is the depth and the profundity and the wonder and the greatness and the glory of the grace of God. Now, that's what we should aspire to if there are young potential evangelists here. We should be asking ourselves, when we're preparing evangelistic talks, have I got it right here? Are these three things coming home? Am I articulating, defending the gospel is true? Secondly, am I communicating it's powerful to transform people even in the most difficult situations? And thirdly, am I communicating the gospel is wonderful? I tell you what, if you do those three, especially the third one, the mark that you've communicated something of the wonder of the gospel is that no one comes to you at the door and says, nice word this morning, thank you. They say that knocked me for sex. That touched me deeply. That really gripped my heart and my mind and my conscience. That's the kind of preaching proclamation we should pray for in our churches and in our missions. It's very rare, sadly. But when you have it, However hard the culture is, people turn. Because the gospel of God's grace is irresistible in terms of its truth, its power, and its wonder. Well, the next slide highlights what he actually communicated, which was very Christ-centered. And I've just listed it there for you. Verse 22, his life and ministry. He was a man attended uh, by God, accredited by God. His death in verse 23, both human and Human wickedness and divine purpose. 24 to 32 is resurrection. Notice one verse on the death of Christ. Eight on the resurrection. We don't speak about the resurrection enough. Michael Green in his book Evangelism in the Early Church says that you do an analysis of all the apostolic sermons in Acts. Every one of them has the same three things at the end. Wherever they start from. Whether it's Peter at Pentecost or Paul at Mars Hill. You look. The starting point is different. The end point is always the same. Here are the three points. There's only one God who created us to whom we are accountable. Secondly, that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's in every sermon. And thirdly, therefore, you better repent or believe. It's in every apostolic sermon. And so we should try to ensure that we give enough evidence to and focus on the resurrection. We shouldn't preach the the cross without the resurrection. And we shouldn't preach the resurrection without the cross. They're both central to the gospel. His exaltation, verses 33 to 36 Salvation, the gift of forgiveness, 37 to 39, and the new community, the transfer of allegiance in 41 to 42. When I was a student in university, I went to the same college as John Wesley. And I don't come from a Methodist background, but all of Wesley's journals were in the, in, in the college library. And I was studying history, so I was interested. I went in and I sometimes, I spent several days reading Wesley's original journals. It was amazing and uh, what struck me was at the end of each day virtually every day he said the same thing in his journals every night and this was it i offered christ to the people today i offered christ to the people today i offered christ to the people today sometimes he changed it and say i offered god's grace in christ to the people today his each day this was his passion to offer Christ. And so wherever we're starting from, if we are not proclaiming or focusing on the person of Christ, wherever we start from, it may be how can you know God exists or do science and the Bible conflict. If we don't get to the person of Christ, we haven't actually communicated the gospel because he's the beginning and the ending. Hey, my time is gone, isn't it? So let me just close with a couple of concluding comments. Notice the help and enabling of the Holy Spirit in his preaching, Uh, which is there. The day of Pentecost was a one-off event, of course, non-repeatable. We can learn from it, but it was one one one-off historic event. And the Holy Spirit anointed his preaching in this situation to inaugurate the church. But the Holy Spirit is also at work when we are sharing the gospel one-to-one. Not all of us will be preachers. I don't have time to compare this passage with Acts chapter 8. But if you read it, you'll see at the beginning of chapter 8, in the Greek text, actually, Michael Green says that there was a revival going on in Samaria, and two things were happening. Some people were preaching the gospel, and there's a completely different Greek word, which Michael Green interprets as a Greek scholar, and others were gossiping the gospel. You're the two things together. Philip was caught up in the midst of this revival, and what happens? God calls him away through the Holy Spirit to uh, the desert To the area around Gaza where he meets an Ethiopian guy and shares the gospel with him. And the ordinary reader of the Bible might think, they look at that passage and think, why on earth did God take Philip away from a revival situation to speak to this one guy? You know the second biggest student movement in the world today in IFES? It's more than twice the size of the student ministry in the UK. It's the Ethiopian student movement. 35,000 students in Bible studies across the country every week. Who was the guy that Philip came to reach out to? The Ethiopian. What do we see in terms of the fruit of that ministry? 2,000 years later, a thriving church. I was there a few years ago and I met a New Testament scholar I knew. And he said, uh, he, he was a rather dry scholar. And I asked him to pray. And there was something special about his prayer. I said, Agna, has something happened to you? He said, Lindsay, I've been touched by the revival here. He said, we're baptizing 200,000 people a year for the last five years. He said, I've been debating with all these liberal theologians in Sweden for the last 40 years. I had to come here and God's touched me by what God is doing through the Ethiopian church. So it is not without problems, but it's remarkable what's happening here. The roots of all of that are in Acts chapter 8, as one individual, gossip the gospel and ask questions. You may not be a preacher, but in your summer programs, you may be a gossiper of the gospel on the beaches or wherever God places you in. Uh, Carcassonne or somewhere else as you share with, uh, with others. Don't devalue the gossiping of the gospel and feel, oh, I wish I could be up there as one of those preachers or I'm less significant. The Holy Spirit wishes to own our ministries if we make ourselves available to him publicly or individually. And lastly, it's not in the passage but because others have mentioned it not to say it's important to persevere. I'm sure others will talk about it tomorrow. But one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 where Paul says, Therefore, brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me close with two quick illustrations for you, okay? One, I hope you don't mind the personal one. I was in Paddington Station the other day and a guy came up to me. He was absolutely packed. He tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and he said, you remember me? I said, yes, you're Kevin, aren't you? The geologist. He said, remember how you read the Bible with me every Sunday for two years, 40 years ago, Lindsay? I said, yeah, and you didn't move one centimeter. You were as hard as a rock. He said, you're right. He said, last year I became a Christian. I haven't seen you for 40 years. I saw you were a bit greyer, you were a bit heavier than you were then. But when I saw you, I thought, I'll go and tell Lindsay I've become a Christian. Perhaps you'd be encouraged. I heard nothing from him for 40 years. That's one of the big advantages of being over 60, you know, folks. (laughs) Is that sometimes you can share the gospel on a summer program on the beach. And in the goodness of God, if you survive that long, sometimes you see people who come to you and say, remember you shared with me? Or they write to you? Or you gave me a tract? And the Lord worked in me over the years. Last illustration is one of my favorite missionaries. His biography might not be as great as... The one that you mentioned, Roger, actually never wrote an autobiography. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary. He went to Burma. He wanted to go to India. The door closed. He ended up in Burma in 1812. Worked there for 38 years. Uh, He lost his first wife. She died. And he remarried the widow of another missionary. And that was quite common in those days. And some people might say, oh, well, there were other widows that he could marry if he lost his wife. He apparently went to his wife's grave every day for a year, and he just wept over the grave and said, Lord, I can't carry on. You've taken my best friend. She's my co-worker, my equal. How can I continue? But anyway, he began to come to terms with it. He remarried. They lost seven children. I've lost one, my only daughter. They lost seven. He persevered. He was tortured upside down. He was put in prison. Some people profess faith, and they deserted him in 1850 when He died. Uh, He had a chest, uh, a lung problem. He was out at sea. They just dumped his body over the side. They didn't even put him in a grave. And uh, numbers are unclear, but there were probably 12 to 15 believers after 38 years of ministry. But he had translated the Bible into the Burmese language in 1850. In 2000, a friend of mine went to Burma for the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language. And as you sometimes do, if you're in a foreign situation, you open the Bible up to see if there are any words you can understand. At the beginning, he just read, translated by Rev. A. Judson. So he turned to the translator, Matthew Lohan, and he said, Matthew, do you know anything about this man? He said, oh, he started to cry. He said, yes, I do. He said, everybody in Burma knows him. We know how he loved our people. Now he was tortured upside down. He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his health. And when he died... There were about 12 of us. Today there are 600,000. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Judson. He never saw it. And neither will you. Neither will I. We'll see some of it in the goodness of God. But even if we don't see it, guided by biblical principles that are unchanging, we press on. So brothers and sisters, encourage one another to pick up from the principles of how Peter engaged with people with the gospel and never, never, never give up because you know that your your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for the wonder of the gospel. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Fill our minds and hearts and senses afresh, we pray, with the sense that the gospel is the greatest message in the history of the world. It's powerful to transform lives, and it's the wonder of wonders. And then send us forth, Lord, to speak, to gossip, to dialogue, to proclaim this message so that people can come and trust you. And may, O Lord, through this ministry, many Come to trust faith in the coming years from other nations in a way that we haven't seen before because you've opened the doors for the propagation of the gospel on the beaches of Britain and France and elsewhere amongst the nations of the world. Help us to see a repeat of people from many language groups trusting you because of this ministry. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.